Welcome to History Books and Wine, where three author friends talk about books and fun historical tidbits, all while raising a glass of vino. We're your hosts, Lori and Bailey, Eliza Knight, and Madeline Martin. So, pour a glass and enjoy the show. Welcome to Episode 7 of History, Books, and Wine. I'm your host, Madeline Martin, a USA Today bestselling author of historical romance with page-turning action, tough heroines, and the men who are strong enough to love them. Today, I'll be talking about Henry VIII and all of his wives, as well as Catherine the Great. You're forewarned that Henry VIII will get a lot more time than Catherine the Great, but that's because we'll be discussing all of his wives and some interesting facts about them, and so I think it'll be worth the extra time that we'll be spending. Before I get started, I'm going to talk about the wine that I'm drinking tonight. This is called Truth and Valor. Uh, I confess I picked it out because the bottle was really, really pretty. I was the one who posted the picture of going to Total Wine to pick out which wine I wanted for the show. Actually, one of the really fun things I enjoy about doing the podcast is getting different wines to try that I wouldn't ordinarily try. So sometimes these wines are a little bit more of a splurge. This definitely was one. I think it was $20 or $25, which is way more than I usually spend on wine. There's this part of me who wants to be a lot more cultured and have a refined palate, but then deeper inside is a really cheap person who's perfectly fine with paying $10 a bottle. So this is kind of fun to try something a little bit different. There is a picture that's posted on our Instagram account and Facebook account, so if you want to see what it looks like and why I was so tempted to spend so much money, you can see it there. This is called Truth and Valor. It is a Zinfandel by Paso Robles, and it says, Truth comes from the vine, and valor is in the making. And so we resist the mortal urge to intervene, allowing the fruit and land to speak with purity. Accordingly, our 2015 Zinfandel comes from Premium Vineyard Blocks and Paso Robles, where a steady marine influence and diverse coastal soils produce a wine with richness, velvety, red fruit, and spice flavors. Enjoy this vintage with barbecue ribs, herb roasted chicken, and other savory dishes, or a really wonderful podcast. So that is what I'm drinking tonight. If you guys are like me, you probably love shows about history, especially if you're listening to history books and wine, because history is a pretty common core in all of that. Some of my favorite historical shows have been The Tudors, which you'll be learning again about Henry VIII and all of his wives here, and also Reign, which is about Mary Queen of Scots, and Lori and Bailey will be discussing that next Thursday. And also, if you have kids, or even if you just like really funny, silly shows, there's a Netflix show called Who What. I'll put links to all all of these shows in the show notes as well. But the show Who What is a fun little series that covers people in history and it puts it into fun stories that children can appreciate. My nine-year-old absolutely loves the Who What show. In fact, when we were listening to Eliza's podcast on Queen Elizabeth, my youngest said, oh, I know Queen Elizabeth. She was on the Who What show. And then she said, somebody take this collar off of me stat. It's ridiculous. Because I guess that was what one of the actresses had said being silly. But it's a really, really cute show. They cover everyone from Marie Curie to Marie Antoinette. 
So without further ado, we are going to get into Henry VIII. So you have a forewarning that I am about to history nerd out on you so hardcore. I'm about to make your head spin because I love Henry VIII in this time period in history. I mean, I don't like love, love Henry VIII. Like I would lose my head over him. <laughs> yeah, I just went there. But I really do love this time period. I love all of the wives and I can understand why the Tudors was made after Henry VIII's life because when they say the truth is stranger than fiction, that is the case here. It is full of debauchery and deceit and drama and scandal. It's delicious, I just have to say. First of all, Henry VIII was quite a charming guy. He spoke English, Latin, French, and some Italian, which if you're like one of my daughters, knowing some of some language means that you actually probably know about five phrases. I'm going to guess he probably knew more, but it probably wasn't much more. But Henry VIII was also a very talented musician. He could play by ear. He was great created the lute. He wrote a lot of music, actually, like actually composed it himself and wrote it. However, not green sleeves, as he was rumored to have done so. That actually was an Italian style of music that came later on. He was an incredible dancer, and it was said that he leapt like a stag, which really puts a pretty funny image in my head, but I'm sure that he looked really graceful and dandy. Hey, history lovers, Eliza here. We're interrupting today's happy hour to let you know that Lori and I host another fascinating podcast with our friend, Brenna Ash. Hey there, this is Brenna. Crime Feast is a true crime podcast hosted by three friends who are obsessed with all things crime. Each week, join Brenna, Eliza, and I as we serve up a platter of murders, mayhem, missing persons, tragedies, and more. Feast on notorious tales ripped from today's headlines and resurrected from the past. Until then, stay safe out there. We don't want you on the menu next. Now, back to the show. Cheers! He was incredibly intelligent and actually penned several books that he published, one of which went to print 20 different times. I'm sure him being the king may have had something to do with that. He was also incredibly athletic, and the people loved that he was so athletic when he first took the throne. He loved to joust. He loved to play tennis, which they had back then. He loved hunting. He loved riding his horse. And I saved the best part for last. He was six foot four. Oh, yeah. Yep. Now, some places have actually said that he was six foot two, and I think that really just the fact that he was over six feet tall, especially in that time period, made him pretty popular. So he sounds like a really great guy, right? Well, with the exception of he did make boiling a legal punishment, but it was only for people who poisoned. He was scared to death of getting sick and didn't even visit Anne Boleyn when she had the sweating sickness for fear of getting it himself. He destroyed over 800 monasteries, abbeys, nunneries, and friaries. He was kind of addicted to gambling. He was the deadliest ruler in all of England with over 72,000 executions during his reign. That's estimated. And, of course, the two wives that he had beheaded. There is that. Funny thing about Henry VIII is that he was actually the father of the Royal Navy. All we actually know him for are his six wives. In fact, if you have a hard time remembering Henry VIII and what were the demises of his six wives, then you would just need to know this little mnemonic poem. King Henry VIII, 
To six wives he was wedded, one died, one survived, two divorced, and two beheaded. I thought that was pretty cute. I think that could be a nice little Tinder profile. Just, you know, swipe right. Henry VIII was born in 1491 and known as Richard Fox. He was spared to the air and pretty much got to do as he pleased. He had an older brother named Arthur, and Arthur was the one who was being groomed for the kingship. And so Henry just kind of got set aside and got to do whatever it was that he pleased. In fact, there really isn't a whole lot of history on on Henry's youth simply because he wasn't important. He sort of made up for that, didn't he? <laughs> In 1502, Arthur married Catherine of Aragon. She was the daughter of the king and queen of Spain. She was incredibly beautiful. She had blue eyes, fair skin, and strawberry blonde hair, and the people absolutely loved her. She was raised Catholic, and she was incredibly devout. As a result, she always made sure to support charities. Everybody loved her. She was the perfect queen. Arthur died at age 15 of the sweating sickness, only 20 weeks after having gotten married to Princess Catherine. However, Henry VII was known for being a miser, and he did not want to give back that dowry. And after going through the whole problem of having to get their daughter over to England and send part of the dowry, the king and queen of Spain also just wanted her to stay there and marry the second brother also. They were completely in support of that. Catherine of Aragon ended up staying in England for so long that she was made the first female ambassador just strictly so that she could continue to remain in England without issue. In order for Catherine of Aragon to marry Henry VIII, a papal dispensation should have been issued that stated an impediment and public honesty, meaning that the marriage had not been consummated. However, the papal dispensation ended up coming through of affinity, meaning that it may or may not have actually been consummated, and this becomes very important later on, as I will tell you. So after Henry VII died in 1509, there was an immediately a wedding between Catherine and Henry VIII. Interestingly enough, a lot of shows portray Henry VIII as wanting to marry Catherine because they did actually have have a little bit of a love match earlier in their relationship, but in the very beginning, he kind of was opposed to it, but he said that on his father's deathbed that he wanted him to marry Catherine, and so that's why he did it. And then once they were married, he was very happy, at least for a little while. In 1509, when Catherine and Henry VIII got married, she was 24 and he was 17. It probably didn't feel like a huge age difference at that time, but it definitely becomes one later. Immediately, Catherine got pregnant. Unfortunately, the baby was stillborn, and they had several more stillbirths as well, until they actually did have a son. Unfortunately, he only lived several weeks before he died as well. Then finally, in February 1516, so this is seven years of having constant pregnancies and stillbirths, Princess Mary was born after having six dead babies. I can't even imagine how difficult that was for poor Catherine to endure. In 1519, Henry gets a mistress named Elizabeth Blount. And now Henry did actually have mistresses before. The notable thing about Elizabeth Blount is that she had his first son. His name was Henry Fitzroy. Now, unfortunately, Henry Fitzroy did not have any heirs himself. He did get married at 14. However, he died at 17 without having had an heir. In 1525, Henry is now 34 and Catherine is 40. And this is what I'm talking about where the age discrepancy comes into play. Because Henry does not have a male heir, and Catherine is no longer of childbearing age. 
However, an opportunity arises when Anne Boleyn comes to court, looking all hot and fine with her dark, sultry gaze, her unique looks, because while everybody else is fair-haired and fair-skinned and has pale eyes, she's got this beautiful, glossy, dark hair. She's got a little bit darker of a complexion, and she has these beautiful, dark eyes. She was said to be incredibly intelligent. She was very flirtatious with a sharp wit. She was very good at playing cards, and she completely captivated a room, and she captivated Henry. Something fascinating was that Anne's sister, Mary Boleyn, was actually Henry's mistress for several years. And history speculates that either one or both of Mary's children, a boy and a girl, belonged to him. The likelihood is that the girl probably did belong to him, if either of them did, because if he did have another son, I would imagine that he would probably try to make him legitimate just in case if things didn't work out with Henry Fitzroy. Anne Boleyn did not come from a super rich, entitled family. Her great-grandfather was a hatter, and slowly but surely over time, her family made enough money to purchase their way into nobility. She also spent a lot of time at court in France, and so she had a lot of French tendencies that also were very captivating and made her very unique. She was an accomplished singer, and she was a great gambler. And of course, we know that Henry VIII loved his gambling. Anne Boleyn was also a supporter of the Protestant cause, which may have had something to do with what Henry decides to take on next, which you will learn about in just a moment. Initially, when Henry went to Anne, she turned him down. She played very, very hard to get. And part of this could be the fact she was a consummate flirt. However, a good chunk of it also may have been due to the fact that she had recently suffered from a broken engagement from Henry Percy, who was an earl, who she had absolutely loved. And so initially, she may not have actually really been interested in the king. She may have just been heartbroken. But after a while, of course, her family would have seen opportunity, and I'm sure that they would have nudged her toward the king, regardless of a broken heart. Henry decided that he wanted to marry Anne Boleyn. Also, Anne Boleyn probably would not give him what he wanted unless he agreed to marry her. So when Henry tried to get the annulment done, he cited Leviticus 20.21, which states, If a man marries his brother's wife, it is an act of impurity. He has dishonored his brother, and they will remain childless. He sent so many letters to the Pope in an attempt to get an annulment, because, and this is where the consummation comes into play. If Catherine had consummated her marriage with Arthur, then technically she was Arthur's wife, and per Leviticus 20.21, Henry should never have married her in the first place. But if she was truly a virgin, as she claims that she was, then they would be okay. And of course, they came back and said, oh, but you do have a child. You have Mary. And he says, yes, but I don't have an heir. That's what he needs as an heir. He sent so many letters to the Pope, and they were bound in Henry's red string that he used for his letters, that there's a rumor that that is where the term red tape came from because he sent so many. So in 1531, Catherine was banned from the court, and Anne got her rooms which is pretty sad. I can't even imagine after having gone through seven years of six dead children and then you are eventually set aside. In 1532, Anne and Henry got married in secret because in his mind, he was never married to Catherine anyways. And in 1533, Catherine's marriage was officially annulled, which ended their 24-year marriage. Publicly, Henry married Anne, and Princess Elizabeth was born not long after, and Henry was officially excommunicated from the church. In 1534, Henry becomes the head of the Church of England, and unfortunately, that is when he kills Sir Thomas More, the author of Utopia, as well as several other incredible books, for refusing to acknowledge him as the head of the Church of England. In 1536, Catherine of Aragon dies, 
in which Henry celebrates by having a huge feast and a jousting tournament. In a lovely show of karma, however, he gets injured on the jousting tournament and gets a huge gash in his thigh, which will forever cause him pain and lead him to go from a 34-inch waist to a 52-inch waist. So karma definitely got him there. The marriage to Anne Boleyn was pretty chaotic. They were very passionate. They fought in public. They argued together. She would tell him that he was wrong in front of other people. She did miscarry twice during their marriage, one of them being after the joust, and that one, unfortunately, was a son. Additionally, she noticed something was going on between Henry and her lady-in-waiting, Jane Seymour, which was, by the way, her second cousin, and she notices that Jane is wearing a necklace with a picture of Henry on it that he got for her, not too discreet there, Henry. While she grabs the picture and rips it off, apparently with such force that she actually hurt her hand. Henry decided that he no longer wanted to be married to Anne. She wasn't giving him the airs that he had expected, and he was very unhappy with her, especially when Jane Seymour was so much more meek and mild-mannered. And so, when you go digging for stuff, things come up. They were able to say that she had cheated on the king with five different men, including her brother, which is just gross. And even now in history, when they go back and they look at it, they say that they don't see the likelihood that that actually happened, that somebody had planted evidence to have Anne be killed. May 1536, five men were executed along with her, and that did also include her brother, all of which were accused of adultery. When Anne was beheaded, a swordsman was actually brought in from France, and she's been quoted as saying, I hear he is quite good, and I have a very small neck. Pretty brave, because I think that if I was about to die, I wouldn't be joking about my neck. But I probably would be drinking wine. No arrangements were actually made for after her death, and so she was put inside of an old arrow box instead of a coffin. It's a pretty sad fall for a woman who is queen. 1536 was a very busy year for Henry. First, Catherine of Aragon died, and then he got the leg wound celebrating her death, and then Anne was accused of adultery, and she got beheaded, and in 1536, the 45-year-old king married 28-year-old Jane Seymour, only 11 days after Anne's death. Jane had been a lady-in-waiting not only to Anne Boleyn, but also Catherine of Aragon. She was not beautiful, and was described as meek and quote-unquote, lacking intelligence. That's not just me being mean. She was never actually crowned as queen. However, she did give birth on October 1537 and died due to complications, but she did give Henry a son. As a result, he has always seen her as his best wife and his only wife, and so she is actually the one who Henry was buried beside. Later on, Anne of Cleves was suggested for the next wife, but Henry was heartbroken over having lost Jane and forced to meet with the 25-year-old sister of the Duke of Cleves. Unimpressed, he thought her ugly and with foul smells, and there are rumors that he called her the Flanders Mare, although that is debated in historical text. They were married, but it was never consummated. Apparently, there was a mutual dislike for one another. The king wanted to marry again, and so the marriage was dissolved. She was referred to after that, henceforth, as the king's sister, and was given not only two houses, but a very nice allowance. All in all, girl made out pretty good, I'm just saying. The reason why the king wanted the annulment was because Catherine Howard had stolen his heart. Our king is in love yet again. July 28, 1540, he married on the same day of Cromwell's execution, Grizzly. She was 16 and he was 49, grossly fat and with a festering wound in his thigh from where he'd been injured in the jousting tournament. Catherine was the first cousin of Anne Boleyn. She also loved the French fashion and Henry was so enamored with her that he called her his rose without a thorn. However, she was not equally as enamored with her fat old husband, and she had an affair with Thomas Culpepper, who had courted her as a lady-in-waiting prior to Henry proposing. 
A prior relationship with a man named Deerham was part of her downfall as it ended up that she was in some sort of a weird marriage situation thing with him that actually was consummated, making her act in marrying the king an act of treason. Deerham was hanged, drawn, and quartered, but Culpepper, because he was noble, was beheaded. When Catherine was arrested at Hampton Court, the king was attending mass. She broke free from the guards and ran after him, screaming his name. He never did actually come out and see her. However, they say that to this day, the gallery is still haunted with her ghost. The night before her execution, she actually asked for the execution block to be brought into her room, which she laid her head upon over and over and over in an attempt to make sure that she got it just right. Catherine Parr became his final wife in 1535. She was a serial marrier as well and had four husbands beforehand, all of whom had died. Of natural causes, nothing suspicious. She was a wealthy widow from all of those marriages. She was also highly intelligent and had published several books, one of which was actually in her own name, which was almost unheard of at that time. She spoke French, Latin, Italian, probably more than some Italian, I may add, and was learning Spanish when she became queen. After his death, she finally got to marry for love. She married Sir Thomas More, who turned out to not be such a good love, and you will hear about that if you listened to Eliza's podcast prior to mine when she discussed Elizabeth I. In January 1547, obese and moody with a waist of 54 inches, covered in boils, and with mechanical pieces to get him not only in and out of his bed, but onto and off of his horse, the poor beast, Henry VIII finally died. He was broke from spending too much money on gambling and extravagance, and as he died, he screamed about the monks, probably coming after him for all of the horrible things that he had done. Next, I'll be discussing Catherine the Great. Unfortunately, like I said, I did take up most of the time with Henry VIII, so I will have to be a little bit faster about this one. One of the biggest common misconceptions when it comes to Catherine the Great is that she was promiscuous in, well, how do I put this? A freaky kind of way. And that is actually not the case. There were no animals that were involved in her death along those lines. And she did not sleep with the entire army, as it was basically said. One of the reasons why I really love Catherine the Great was because she was so incredibly intelligent. And she also was a woman before her time, a woman who could do what she wanted, which was almost unheard of in those times. So without further ado, Catherine the Great. Catherine was actually not named Catherine, nor was she Russian. She was actually the daughter of a poor Prussian prince. And in 1729, she was born as Sophie von Anhalt Zorbst. I probably pronounced that incorrectly. I probably should take Russian classes in addition to my Celtic classes. The Tsarina at the time was named Elizabeth Petrovna. She did not have any children of her own, and so she had her nephew, Peter, named as her heir. And in an attempt to try to find Peter a marriage, she held a ball in which eligible ladies came, and that is when Sophie arrived, dressed to impress with her marriage-minded mama, having drilled all of the necessary information that she needed into her mind to become the perfect princess. And so, of course, Sophie wowed everybody, and she was the one that the Tsarina had chosen to marry Peter. Upon her conversion to the Russian Orthodox Church, Sophie became Catherine, or a Katarina. Her marriage took place to Peter on the 21st of August, 1745. Their marriage, unfortunately, was not a happy one, and after eight years without any children, both Catherine and Peter had extramarital affairs, of which the Tsarina was not thrilled. Catherine took on a lover named Sergei Saltikov. Probably wrong, and I really am bad at Russian also 
who was a Russian military officer and is rumored to have fathered Paul, which was their firstborn son, to Catherine and Peter. However, Peter didn't call her out on any of that. Peter, unfortunately, was not a very strong ruler, and so when the Tsarina, Elizabeth, died in 1762... And Peter succeeded the throne as Peter III, with Catherine as consort at his side. As his first act as king, Peter wanted to end the war between Russia and Prussia. But unfortunately, this was really not very popular, because all the programs that were meant to aid the poor were going to be chipping away at the lower nobility's wealth, which of course is not popular because we know they all like to keep their money. As a result, a majority of the nobility went to Catherine for aid. She ended up garnering the support of the military, by the way, not by sleeping with them, to get their support to overthrow Peter. Peter ended up not even putting up a fight and abdicated the throne on July 9th, 1762 to Catherine. Catherine tried very hard to do right by the country and even tried very hard to listen to the people. She put together a document known as Nazak on how the country's legal system should be run and was pushing for capital punishment and torture to be outlawed by calling every man to be declared as equal. It was the first time that people really actually felt like their leader had been listening to them. Catherine also was quite devoted to the arts, being not only an art collector but also an avid reader, and was said to help sponsor several philosophers and writers of the Enlightenment, and actually even wrote letters to Voltaire as well as the writer Denis Diderot, who came to Russia to visit her. And it was actually Diderot who gave her the nickname Catherine the Great. Catherine actually wrote her own memoirs as well. Catherine, fortunately, did not have a very good relationship with her son, Paul. She feared that he was going to be a weak leader. As a result, she tried to keep him from becoming czar. Unfortunately, Peter found out about this and thought that it was treason that she was doing this. Unfortunately, it was her love as a mother trying to keep him from being a bad leader. In mid-November 1796, Catherine suffered a stroke and eventually died. Peter did become king, and unfortunately, he proved to not be a very good king. So you see, the way that she died was not as interesting as everybody was trying to say with the horse and everything else. She actually died a pretty normal death, but she had lived a pretty incredible life. Now to discuss the book that I read this week. What I read was Julie Johnstone's Outlaw King, which is book one of her Renegade Scott series. One of the things that I really enjoy about Julie Johnstone's Renegade Scott series is she has a really beautiful way of writing very, very detailed history that makes it absolutely come alive and puts you in the middle of it. Her writing is very passionate and colorful and beautiful and... Like I said, very, very, very rich in history. So if you love history and you love romance, Julie Johnstone's Outlaw King is for you. So I'm going to read to you what it's about. When headstrong Elizabeth de Burr's evil father threatens to kill her beloved cousin unless she seduces his enemy, Robert the Bruce, she begrudgingly agrees. But as she grows close to the arrogant leader of the Scottish Rebellion, whose savage good looks whisper of pleasure, she discovers that behind Robert's facade of cold-hearted traitor lies a noble fighter who will risk all for the freedom of his country. Now she can no longer imagine aiding in Robert's destruction, but does she have a choice? Fierce Scottish warrior Robert the Bruce would do anything to release his country from English rule and claim his rightful throne. Enemies on both sides surround him, however, and Robert must dance a dangerous line between truth and duplicity. One misstep could topple his nation and cost him his life, yet one irresistible woman tempts him and jeopardizes his mission as no other ever has. Robert is in no position to entangle himself with the enemy, especially one who may be plotting his defeat, but the feisty, determined, blue-eyed beauty ignites a longing in Robert 
that he has never known. But is she his biggest threat or his greatest source of strength? Bound by duty and honor, but ensnared by uncontainable desire, Robert and Elizabeth must decide how much they are willing to sacrifice for one thing they thought they'd never find, extraordinary love. This is about Robert the Bruce, which Lori and Bailey will be discussing next Thursday, so make sure you tune into that. And if you have not read this book, I highly recommend it. It's very, very good. So now I'll be talking about one of my books, and I actually had a release this Tuesday. Yay! This was actually from an anthology that I did with Lorianne Bailey, Eliza Knight, and also Cecilia Mecca. It was called Ladies of the Stone, and at the time, the book was called Cassandra, my piece that I wrote, and I did actually change that to be Her Highland Destiny. This is part of my Highland Passion series. One of the things that I really enjoyed about writing Her Highland Destiny is that Cassandra, the main character, has always felt like she wasn't measuring up to what she was supposed to measure up to, and I really enjoyed writing her character in this because I feel like a lot of us probably go through, or at least I know I have, gone through my life feeling like there were certain things that I should do and that I should measure up to that I felt like I really couldn't. And sometimes even as an adult, I sometimes still feel that way. So that's what I I really enjoyed about writing Cassandra's character. Here is a blurb on that. Cassandra Thomas is the youngest born daughter in a line of powerful women, destined to have a great gift. Just as she is giving up hope on ever receiving her powers, a mark appears on her hip and her purpose looms on the horizon. But she is not the only one seeking the stone to protect Scotland as a mysterious dark-haired man is as determined to get at it. One who is strong, sinfully handsome, and arouses many wicked longings. Sir Fergus the Undefeated is desperate to save his son. In order to do so, he must bring the heart of Scotland to the king as well as its protector. But no amount of training could prepare Fergus for the woman he is up against or the passion she reawakens within him. Cassandra and Fergus work together in hopes of succeeding in protecting Scotland and reuniting Fergus with his son. But when the power of the stone beckons, will their love be strong enough to banish the evil, or will betrayal tear them all apart? There are some paranormal elements to this book. It was a lot of fun to write. I'm really grateful that I got to have the opportunity to make this series with Lorianne Bailey and Eliza Knight and also Cecilia Mecca. Now I'm going to read one of the reader questions that was sent to us at our historybooksandwine at gmail.com address. Thank you so much for getting those questions sent in. We really do appreciate it. And if you do have any questions, feel free to send more. We always like getting reader questions to answer. So the question this week is, what series are you currently working on? Right now, I'm actually working on a medieval series about five sisters called the Borderland Ladies. I do have a lot of information on my website, including character bios and backstories for supporting characters. So I'm going to read the background of the Borderland Ladies really quick, hopefully, um, to give you an idea of what it's about. The border spanning between England and Scotland was a treacherous land where boundaries were blurred, loyalty was subjective, and survival was forefront. In an attempt to allay the chaos, the borderlands were fractured into six marches, with each one assigned a warden. Peace was precarious, especially with the unclaimed debatable lands, which was owned neither by England nor Scotland, and housed the worst of the dreaded border reavers. It was one of these clans of border reavers, the Grams, who exacted the fiercest of attacks on Warwick. Before the protective curtain wall was erected, the castle sat atop a hill of lush green grass, seemingly impenetrable and yet fatally vulnerable. After heavy rains and frigid temperatures left food scarce, the Grams attacked Warwick Castle in an act of desperation. The defenses crumbled and the Reavers stormed the castle, their enormous victory quickly escalating to wild bloodlust. 
People were slain, stores were taken, homes burned. Through it all, the Earl of Warwick fought valiantly to defend his wife and their four golden-haired little girls. His efforts, however, were in vain, and a dark-haired Graham Reaver managed to break through the small stronghold established within the castle's chapel. Unconscious and bleeding, Lord Warwick could do nothing to save his family, and so it fell to Lady Warwick to step forward and protect their daughters. The price of such protection was steep and nearly left her dead. But Lady Warwick did survive at least in body, for each day that her belly swelled with an unwanted child, her spirit dimmed that much more. Her comely face, once bright with laughter and joy, had ceased to smile. On the night of a violent storm came a violent birth. Amid screams and maddening pain, a life was given and a life taken. Lady Warwick survived long enough to deliver a dark-haired little girl into the world before the remainder of her spirit faded forever. Despite the child's origin, despite the partial relation to the Earl's daughters, they all loved the babe with her wide, solemn blue eyes, for she was the last gift they would ever receive from their beloved Lady Warwick. With the loss of his love, the Earl fell into deep melancholy. Marin, the eldest daughter at only ten, resumed care for her sisters as well as running the household, seeing to things as her mother had once done. It was said the Earl should never have had his family in so treacherous a land. It was also said the love between Lord and Lady Warwick was such that it made them inseparable and the chasm of sadness the Earl made plans for his daughters to leave Warwick, but amid their own consuming sorrow they refused. Having lost a mother, they would not now lose a father as well. The Earl of Warwick, ever soft in his love for his girls, gave in to their pleas under one condition. If only warriors and reavers survived these hostile lands, then his daughters would be raised to act like ladies, but to fight like men. That is my Borderland Ladies series. You can find more information at my website. It's madelinemartin.com. And now I have a question for readers. What are some of the favorite ways that you would like to see authors introduce new series to you? As authors, we're always looking for new ways to do that, which is one of the reasons why I wrote the history and the character profiles and also some of those side stories that I'm doing for all of the supporting characters. You can email us your answer at historybooksandwine at gmail.com. Also, please do check out our website at historybooksandwine.buzzsprout.com where you can read through all of the show notes that we have here. We can be found on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google, and on Alexa. And also, please know that we are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Please feel free to leave a review if you've enjoyed our show. New episodes are posted every Thursday with the upcoming shows including the following. On April 4th, Lori Ann Bailey will discuss Robert the Bruce and Mary Queen of Scots. April 11th, with all of us for a happy hour where we talk about more people in history and play a fun truth or false fact drinking game. This should be fun. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening and I hope that you enjoyed a glass of wine with this as much as I did. Good night. 